I'm excited this morning because we're going to begin a four-week series for this new year that I'm titling The Essentials. Uh, This is going to be a series about us, about Christians, about Christ followers, or whatever title you might want to apply to those of us who have committed our life to Jesus. But if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, don't, don't check out on me because I'm going to share truth with you that you are going to need to know as you consider, perhaps, following Jesus. We're going to look at four essential habits that should be continually developed in the life of anyone who is living for Jesus Christ. And and today we're going to talk about an ever-expanding faith. And I want to begin by reading from Matthew chapter 14. In fact, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the the 14th chapter of Matthew. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you and you're on the main floor, there there are some Bibles in the pew pocket in front of you. You're in the balcony, we don't have Bibles, but you can follow along on the screen behind me, Matthew chapter 14. Let me just give you a little bit of a, of a, of a preview before we read this scripture. Jesus has just been with a multitude of people where he performed the miracle of feeding 5,000 people with just five small loaves of fish, or, or bread and two small fish. But at this moment in time, he just needed to be alone in the presence of God. It is an example of what I shared with you last week about how we need to get alone and how we need to be still before God. And Jesus displayed this for us. This was one of many times where he set the example of of his need to find rest and shelter and strength in the presence of our Heavenly Father. He needed this time in order to recharge himself for the work that had been set before him. And at this particular moment, something remarkable happens. So we'll pick it up here, Matthew chapter 14. We'll be reading verses 22 through 33. Matthew 14, 22 through 33. Immediately he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but by this time the boat, battered battered by the waves, was far from the land, for the wind was against against them. And early in the morning he came walking toward them on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It's a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, don't be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. May the Lord add blessing and understanding to the reading of his word this morning. Several years ago, Lisa gave me a birth, probably the best birthday present that I had ever received. Every year after the completion of the annual race at Phoenix International Raceway, a company called the Bondurant School of Driving hosted an event called Lap the Oval. 
Basically, a group of about 30 people come in for a day of training, which culminates in driving a modified Formula One type racing car around that track. It was one of the most exciting and exhilarating things that I've ever had the privilege of experiencing. And we checked in and and they gave me a jumpsuit and a helmet and we began to receive classroom instruction on the cars, on how they handle and how the track was laid out. Things like when to go high and when to go low on the track, uh, when to accelerate, when to slow down. So after about an hour in this classroom setting, we were asked to get into a van. 15 of us loaded up in one van and 15 loaded up in the other. And I ha- as it works out, I happened to get the passenger seat right next to the driver. We proceeded out on the track at PIR, and this kid who doesn't look like he's a day over 21 years, he opens up the throttle. And he starts driving that van on the track. He gets going about 90 miles an hour in a van loaded with people. He goes low on the track when he makes the turns, and he goes high on the track at other times, and that track is on an angle like this. And so he gets so close to the wall, and I'm right next to the mirror, it looks like the mirror's going to scrape off, and I was getting uptight. And listen, you got to understand, I was a kid who had a go-kart and a dirt bike. I love speed. I love cars. I love hard corners and fast starts and quick stops. I love to drive. And I've always wanted the opportunity to drive a racing car. And after all that classroom instruction and all the preliminaries, I was able to drive one of them around that track at PIR, full throttle on my very own. But what I found out on that day is I only love it when I'm the one who's driving. When I'm in control, I was holding onto the, dash, the, the handle on that dashboard so tight that my knuckles were white. He was taking those corners in that van so fast that I just knew gravity was going to take over and we were going to tip over on our side with all 15 of us on board. So I look over to this kid and I ask him if this van can handle these turns at these kinds of speeds without tipping over. And he says to me, it's never happened before. That was not the answer I was looking for. Now, at this point, I could start chanting, I believe, I believe, I believe, all the way through our 20-lap trip. But the truth is that myself and everybody who was in that van had placed our lives in the hands of this young man. I mean, I felt like that, that my life rested on the competence and the character of this guy who was driving this souped-up, full-sized passenger van. And the question became clear to me at that moment, can I trust this driver? Is there somebody qualified driving this van, and can I trust him? The reason I share that story with you is because we live in a world full of people who try to psych themselves up who try to cultivate a positive mental attitude. And that's okay. But there are people who take it over the top, who chant, I believe, I believe, I believe, over and over and over again on things that do not matter. We live in a day when sociologists tell us that we have begun to put faith in faith. We tell ourselves, if I just believe hard enough, but it's all kind of a game. You see, the real issue is this. Is somebody driving this thing called my life? And can that somebody 
be trusted. As a follower of Jesus, I have come to the conclusion that my God's competence and my God's character is such that I can, with total confidence, place my destiny and my everyday life into his caring hands. That is faith, ladies and gentlemen, and faith is intimately connected to fear, or excuse me, to risk. There is no faith without risk. And risk is intimately connected to fear. There is no faith without risk, and there can be no risk without fear, and sometimes, yes, even failure. And so having said all of that, let's get to this story of Peter in this boat. You need to understand what was going on on this particular evening. It starts with verse 22 where it says, Immediately he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat. Some translations use the word compelled them to get into the boat. Now, why did he have to make them? Matthew makes a point here that they had to be compelled to get into the boat. I've already briefly explained what happened immediately preceding this story. It was the feeding of the 5,000. It was a time where Jesus was preaching to a multitude of people. He could see that they were hungry, and the scripture said he has compassion upon them. And so he used five loaves and two fish from a boy's lunchbox, and he multiplied it, and he fed that entire multitude. We also know from John's gospel that after this episode, the people got this idea that Jesus would make a wonderful king. And it's not hard to understand why. I mean, if a guy can take five loaves and two fish and feed 5,000 people, what could he do against the Roman Empire? I mean, if you were to give him one sword or one chariot or one horse, he'd be like the ultimate fighting machine, and he could overthrow the Romans. So the people said, Let's make him king. But Jesus said to them, no, I am not that kind of a king. I didn't come to bring about that kind of a kingdom. And it's even conceivable that along with the crowd, his disciples all thought this was a great idea as well. They wanted to see it happen. But Jesus has to say to the crowd, no. And to his disciples, he says, get into the boat. Because the incarnate Jesus needed some time alone with God and away from his friends and away from the crowds. He says, get into the boat. Give up your idea about power and glory and some kind of an earthly kingdom. This is not a military revolution, and I am not the resistance leader. Trust me on this, guys. Get into the boat. And so they do. It is an act of trust and obedience on their part as they get into that boat. Now, I want you to use your imaginations here with me this morning. I want you to picture this scene. When they get into the boat, it is still daylight. You'll notice in verse 23, it says this about Jesus. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. This happened after the boat had already left. And when evening came, he was still there alone. In other words, when the boat left, it was still daylight, and it, still, uh, and it was still apparently at least late in the afternoon. And the particular body of water that they're on is, is the Sea of Galilee. It wasn't a very large body of water, only about four and a half miles across at its widest point. 
Now, I want you to also remember that many of the guys in that boat are professional fishermen. They've spent most of their entire lives in boat and on the water. But it says in verse 24 that a storm comes along. It says, when evening came, he was there alone, but by the, this time the boat, battered by the waves, was far from the land, for the wind was against them. This storm comes along, and it is so rough that these professional sailors cannot make it across this body of water. But in verse 25, it tells us that Jesus comes to them in the early hours of the morning. In fact, the King James Version says, the fourth watch of the night. What that means is Romans divided up the night into four different watches, 6 to 9 p.m., 9 to 12, 12 to 3, and 3 to 6. That was the fourth watch. So Jesus comes to these guys sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., and they're still in that boat that had left the shore in that late afternoon. They've been in this water the entire time. Picture in your mind how big the waves must have been on that sea. And combine that with the strength of the wind and the darkness of the night and this little boat struggling not to capsize. In verse 24, literally, Matthew says the boat was battered by the waves. That's the words that he uses. Cold, wet, exhausted, and terrified are the conditions in which Peter is going to get out of this boat. Listen, the idea of stepping out of any boat at any time, even under calm conditions, and walking on the water would take great courage, wouldn't you say? I'm thinking it would take about as much courage as any human being could muster up. But imagine doing it while the waves are crashing and the winds are at gale force and it's 3 o'clock in the morning, not to mention it's so dark you can hardly see your hand in front of your face. And furthermore... You're not all that happy with Jesus in the first place because he made you get into that boat, and now he's saying, get out. So Peter gets out, but he falls. He doesn't make it. It's a story of failure. Or is it? Listen, I want to do something this morning, and I want you to work with me on this because I want to do a mass confession. I'm going to ask everyone in this place to raise your hand and hold it up in the air until I'm done if you've ever failed a test. Have you ever been cut from a team? Cut from a team, sporting team. Have you ever didn't get a job or a promotion that you wanted? Have you ever been impatient with a three-year-old? Have you ever said the wrong thing? Keep your hands up, don't drop them down. You're strong enough to hold your arm for a couple seconds. Have you ever eaten with the wrong fork at a fancy restaurant? <laughs> Have you ever experienced moral, athletic, academic, social, financial, vocational, relational, spiritual failure of any kind? If so, raise your hands, would you please? Look at this place. Look at this place. All of us are would-be water walkers. You can put your hands down now. And there's something we need to know regarding this. God did not intend for the life of human beings created in his divine image to be about failure avoidance. Let that sink in for a minute. 
God did not create you simply to go through life in a desperate attempt to avoid failure. Yes, the boat is safe. Yes, the boat is secure. Yes, the boat is dry and comfortable. While the water is high and the waves are rough and the wind is strong and the night is dark and there's a storm going on out there. So if you get out of the boat, whatever your boat may happen to be, there's a possibility that you may sink. It may happen. But I want you to hear me out this morning. If you don't get out of that boat, there is a certainty that you will never walk. Why? Well, you've heard this a thousand times before. If you hope to walk on the water, ladies and gentlemen, you got to get out of that boat. There is something deep inside of all of us that, that tells us our lives are about more than something of just sitting in that stinking boat. There is something deep inside of all of us that wants us to get out and walk on that water. It calls us to leave our comfort zone and our predictable, routine-driven existence. You know what I'm talking about. You're caught in one right now and abandon ourselves in this ultimate adventure of following Jesus. So early in these morning hours, Jesus comes to his disciples, and it says in verse 26, but when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, it's a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus says in the very next verse, verse 27, take heart, it is I, don't be afraid. And he says that to human beings who are afraid all the time. He says, fear not. He says, it's me. You can trust in my character. You can trust in my competence. You can safely and without reservation or hesitation place your life in my hands. You can trust me. He's saying to us today, stop being afraid. You're in this storm, but you have me. Now you must recognize who and which is more powerful. So Peter takes Jesus at his words. He says in verse 28, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. This disciple is seeking the command of the Lord. And then he obeys the command of the Lord. Jesus says, all right, Peter, get out of the boat. I can imagine the other disciples kind of nudging each other while this whole thing is starting to unfold. Because you see, Peter has a reputation. Peter shoots off his mouth an awful lot. And so they're thinking, how far will this thing play out? So Peter takes a hold of the side of the boat, and he takes one leg, and he steps out. And as he's holding on, he takes the other leg, and he swings it out of the boat. And he's standing there on the water. And guess what? He's still standing. And he focuses on Jesus. And he starts to walk towards him. And he takes another step. And for the first time in all of human history, a man, a mortal man, is walking on the seas. For just a moment, it is no one but Peter and Jesus. The text says that as Peter starts walking towards Jesus, all of a sudden, he comes to his consciousness of what it is he's actually doing. He sees the storm. He feels the sting of the water on his face. And his faith gives way. And he's afraid once again, and he sinks. So let me ask you a question. Did Peter fail? Before I answer that, I want you to notice one thing. 
this text that we've read, in my mind, radically redefines failure in the life of a follower of Jesus. Failure is not so much an event, ladies and gentlemen. It's really the way that we interpret or judge an event. It's really the kind of label that we attach to it. Jonas Salk was the inventor of the polio vaccine. He attempted 200 unsuccessful vaccines before he came up with the one that worked. Somebody asked him, how did it feel to fail 200 times to discover that vaccine? And this was his response. I've never failed 200 times at anything in my life. My family taught me to never use that word. I simply discovered 200 ways how not to make a vaccine for polio. Somebody asked Winston Churchill, what most prepared you to lead Britain through the great World War II? You see, for a period of time, Great Britain was standing complete alone in isolation against Nazi Germany that was dominating the Western world. And Churchill said, he said, well, I think it was a time that I repeated a grade in grade school. The questioner then asked, you mean you flunked a grade? And here's Churchill's response. I never flunked in my life. I was given a second opportunity to get it right. Jonas Salk came up with 200 unsuccessful attempts to vaccinate against polio. Let me ask you a question. Was Jonas Salk a failure? Just take a wild guess. Winston Churchill flunked a grade in elementary school for crying out loud. Was Winston Churchill a failure? I would say with great certainty that both of these men were highly successful. I was born and raised north of Detroit, Michigan, and I grew up watching the Detroit Lions. And did you know the Detroit Lions have never won a Super Bowl? Are the Detroit Lions a failure? Yes, they are. No, they are not failures. <laughs> They've discovered creative ways on how not to win a Super Bowl. That's all I keep telling myself. Did Peter fail? Yeah, he did. He, his faith gave way. He couldn't stay locked on to Jesus, so he sank and he failed. But you know what I think? I don't think that at all. I think that there were 11 bigger failures sitting their butts in that boat. Sorry if butt offends you. <laughs> Those guys failed privately. Those guys failed quietly. Their failure was safe. It was unnoticed. It was uncriticized. It didn't go public. It didn't get on social media. Only Peter experienced the public shame of his failure. But let me tell you something. Only Peter experienced a couple of other things. Only Peter knew the glory of walking on water. And I imagine that stuck with him till the day that he died and went on to glory. I mean, once you walk on water, <laughs> I don't think that ever leaves you. Only Peter knew the glory of what that was like, to be, to be gripped and also saved by Jesus in a desperate moment. Only Peter understood what that was. You see, only Peter experienced something that others didn't, namely the other 11 who sat quietly in that boat. When Peter sank, he realized through personal experience that Jesus would be there and that Jesus is wholly adequate to save. Sinking people like you and me need to understand that. Jesus is wholly adequate to save us. 
His arm is strong enough, guys. Peter had shared a moment. He had shared a connection with Jesus that nobody else had, while the others would never experience that moment because they never got out of the boat, because they simply chose to play it close to the vest as they've done most their entire life. And incidentally, I would like to say this morning that Jesus is still looking for people who will get out of the boat. This is not about people in the Bible. This is about people in the New Testament times which we are living in. Please understand, I do not mean that God is looking for high-risk-taking, bungee-cord-jumping, evil Knievel type adrenaline junkies. That's not what I'm talking about, but if you're one of those, God bless you. This story, I believe, was not written to glorify risk-taking. I believe that Matthew carefully crafted this episode to help us understand the true nature of discipleship. Matthew spells out for us the desire of the disciples' heart in verse 28 when Peter answers him, Lord, command me to come to you on the water. It's the desire of the true heart of a disciple to seek the command of the master and then to respond to the command of the master. If you're wondering this morning, what does it mean for you to get out of the boat? It sounds exciting to you. You're all in. You're ready to sign up. But what do you do? Well, let me tell you what I believe is at the heart of it all. It's a choice that you make to become a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Christ. Now, in Jesus' day, that was a very clear step. People literally left whatever they were doing, and they followed him around. Of course, Jesus has ascended to heaven. He is at the right hand of the Father. So in our day, we still follow him. We follow him in a different way because his presence, his personal, physical presence is not in front of us, though his spirit is. But let me tell you what a modern-day disciple is not. A disciple is not a person who simply believes a certain thing so that they'll go to heaven when they die. Let me give you a non-original description of a disciple that I once read, and I don't know who to credit it to. But it said, a disciple is somebody whose ultimate goal is to live the way that Jesus would live if he was in my body. When a non-disciple is somebody which has another ultimate goal, than to live in a way that Jesus would if he were in my body. That's as sharp of a contrast as I know how to present to you folks. You're not likely to drift into discipleship. No, you've got to choose. And once you've made that choice, once you have settled the disciple question, then the next step is going to look different for each and every one of us. Because we're all different. And we've all got many different things that we need to learn. I can't help but think of a nun who saw the children on the streets of Calcutta being treated like refuse, being treated like human beings of no value. And she believed that Jesus had something to say and to teach this world about the value of human life. She believed that every person was special and every person was created with a God-given purpose for existence. She believed in loving the least of these, something that Jesus said was more than a statement, but it was, it, he really meant what he said. And so she, came over, she overcame her fears 
in all of those what-if questions that we continually ask ourselves. She stifled all of those fears of where the resources might come from to take care of these throwaway children. She realized that love was, was not just a powerful emotion or a word, but it was an action, and so she acted. And there has probably never been anybody who has selflessly helped more orphaned, helpless children than Mother Teresa did in her lifetime. She got out of the boat. She did what she knew God was directing her to do. Back in 1955, there was a devoted follower of Jesus and who was a seamstress. And she was a member of the Dexter Baptist Church. And she believed that Jesus had something to say about justice and love and fairness to our segregated nation. She believed our nation need to live by its creed that all men are created equal. So one day when the bus driver told her she needed to go to the back of the bus because she was African-American, she refused. She made one of the most courageous choices of the 20th century. She refused to give up her seat and because of her actions, something incredible happened. The next Monday night, between 10 and 15,000 people, Christians gathered together at her, her church to pray and to ask God, what do we do next? And because of her choice, a revolution began that was not an easy revolution, and it paid a high cost. Many were beaten, many were imprisoned, and many were killed. But it was required in order to change the conscience of our nation regarding racial equality, all because of this mild-mannered, soft-spoken, Christ-following seamstress by the name of Rosa Parks decided to get out of the boat. Both of these ladies, through great courage and faith in God, had their faith even more greatly expanded through their actions. And this brings us to an aspect of discipleship that a lot of people don't like. Some of you won't. I don't always like it myself, but here it is. A commitment to a life of following Jesus is a commitment to the constant reoccurrence of the experience of fear. It will happen. It happened in this scripture that we read today. Jesus commands them to get into the boat, and they do. A storm comes, and they're afraid. So Jesus comes to them, walks out to them on the sea. When they say him, they're terrified. Again, verse 26 says, but when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying it's a ghost, and they cried out in fear. And Jesus says to them, take heart. Do not be afraid. And Peter says, what do you want me to do, Jesus? And Jesus says, come. Take that next step. Now that you've dealt with your fear. He doesn't say just stay in that boat and be comfortable. He says now take the next step. So Peter gets out of the boat. He walks on the water for a while and then he sinks. What does he experience at that point? He experienced more fear. But he cries out and Jesus rescues him once again. That's not the last time that Peter is going to face panic. That's not the last time Peter is going to face fear. To be a disciple, guys, is to be a learner. It's to be a student. It is to choose to grow in Christ Jesus. And growth inevitably means entering into territory by getting out of the boat. And you know what? Even when you do, you're going to experience some fear. That's the amazing thing about discipleship. Fear will always be present. Every time you get out of the boat, every time you enter a new challenge, you're going to experience some fear. Discipleship is always a choice between comfort and fear. And to be a true disciple is to renounce your comfort. That's bad news. 
especially for those of us living in America, because we are so deep into comfort. You know what the number one selling chair in America is? It's the lazy boy. It's not risky boy. It's not worker boy. It's lazy boy. We like to come home and immerse ourselves in comfort. We have terms for that too. Somebody wants to go home and do absolutely nothing at all. We used to say, I just want to go home and veg out. I just want to vegetate. I want to make myself as much like a plant life as humanly possible, usually in front of a television set. Today, you might say, I'm decompressing. I've heard my staff use that term before. Amen? But we also have a term for people who veg out or decompress in front of a television set. We call them couch potatoes. Couch potatoes in lazy boy chairs. It's not a good training for discipleship at all when you think about it. So there are 11 other disciples who are kind of boat potatoes. You won't find that in the Bible. But they don't want to risk anything. They did not want to, to experience the fear associated with following Jesus that far. They just didn't want to do it. And churches all over America are filled with people like that, of what we might call pew potatoes. People whose religious faith amounts to little more than a spiritual padding to add comfort to their already comfortable lives. But Jesus is calling people today to get out of the boat, and this morning he is calling us, High Point Assembly, to get out of the stinking boat. And I don't know what that's going to look like for you exactly, but maybe you're here today and you're married, and God is tugging at you. But you've been waiting on your spouse, who maybe isn't particularly interested in spiritual growth. You've been waiting for your spouse to move. And Jesus is saying to you today, you come. You come. And you draw closer to me and watch as your wife or your husband does the same thing. Maybe God has laid upon your heart a ministry that he's called you to develop and to lead. It's an opportunity for you to make a greater impact for Jesus within this community. But maybe you have a family to care for and you fear that if you take that move, you can't safely do all of those things the way you always had, but those that you love may suffer. And perhaps God is saying to you this morning, in your obedience to what I'm asking you to do, trust me, I can take care of all of those concerns. Am I not greater than the storms that go on out there? Maybe God is calling you to an act of sacrificial generosity. you got a really nice boat, but maybe you haven't been out of that boat in a really long time. Maybe your boat is a yacht, and it's real comfortable. And maybe you remember a time in your life when you were out of that boat on a regular basis and you were giving and you were serving and you were active in the work of your church, you'd eagerly say, Jesus, just give me the word and I'll come to you. And you got out of the boat whenever he asked you to, but you've gotten comfortable there and you haven't left that comfort for a long, long time. Maybe you're afraid. Believe me when I tell you I know that feeling. I experienced a bit of my own when we decided to come here to be your next pastor. We prayed, and we knew that this is where God wanted us. We were in complete agreement as a family to come here. And we decided that this is where God called us to be. And I remember early mornings after we made that decision, 
just staring up at the ceiling before we had moved with fear in my heart, asking myself all of those what-if questions. So I took a step back and I tried to discern what was troubling me, what was waking me up in the morning, and I realized what was troubling me was not survival issues. I wasn't worried about being able to feed my family. My fear, to be candid with you, was about failure. What if the people that I am the closest to, the people in my life who are most important to me, the people whose estimation of me matters the most, what if I fail and they see it? I didn't like that about myself. Getting out of the boat for me was not just about coming to this church. It was about dying to this crazy obsession of needing to appear successful. I would have been normally one of the 11 in the boat because I didn't want to publicly fail. The truth is that sometimes in my life, I want to walk on the water to impress the boat potatoes. But that's not what walking on the water is about at all. Walking, about, walking on the water is about coming to Jesus. And if you try it, you may in fact sink. But I have a secret to tell you today. It's a word of encouragement for you and for me. And here it is. Very deep. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because Jesus is adequate to save sinking people. Peter gets out of the boat, and he sees that the winds are strong, and he becomes frightened. And as he begins to sink, he cries out, Lord, save me. It is his confession of the lordship of Jesus Christ. It is his plea for deliverance. And Jesus immediately reaches out his hand, and he catches him. You see, there is no failure that can place you in any kind of of a place that is beyond the loving reach and hand of our Heavenly Father. God is fully adequate to save sinking people. Jesus is still still looking today for people to get out of the boat. And when you do, something remarkable happens. In fact, at the end of this text, as a result of, of Peter having gotten out of the boat, even through his failure, we see the redeeming, saving hand of Christ made manifest. Because in verse 33, it says this, when they got into the boat, The wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. They had a new encounter. They had a new understanding of the identity of Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen of High Point Assembly, when people get out of the boat, the power of God is always put into play. And I don't know how else to say this, but remarkable things happen. They just do. 